The children are leaving. I'd like to ask if you would pray for them all the time, and this is a reminder you see them leaving. Pray for them. Also, take 30 seconds without leaving your seat. Find somebody, turn around, make eye contact, wink, wave, point to, put your thumbs up. You're glad to see them. They're glad to see you without leaving your seat. (laughs) Some of you are trying to do it all at once. Okay, I hope everybody feels warmly greeted. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of opening your word right now and finding out the wisest ways of all in how to live our lives because you're the one who's going to tell us about it. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles to Titus. I'd like to get a little bit of background, and we'll, we'll start reading in verse 5. We're going to be looking at verses 6 in the first part of verse 7, but we'll, we'll read the verse before. Titus chapter 1, beginning with verse 5. The Apostle Paul writing to Titus, his protege, his child in the Lord, somebody that he had been able to bring to the Lord. And he said, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so what follows now is a list of what those elders are supposed to be like. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Picture a solemn ceremony at a funeral home, understanding that a brother or sister has just died and is being honored by colleagues. Recently, I read about a funeral for a war veteran in which the man's military buddies had a role in the service. The friends requested that the minister lead them to the casket at the front of the funeral home for a moment of silence. They would then follow the pastor in a dignified way out a side door. The plan was carried out with military precision until the minister marched them into a broom closet. The soldiers had to make an awkward retreat. What's the point of that? The point of that is that Ministers need a lot of help. So if in your homes or if you're in funeral homes, if you would label all of the doors, it would really help us a lot so we wouldn't make those kinds of mistakes. I can feel exactly what happened because I could have done that so easily. Uh, I do that quite often, but that's not really the point that we're trying to make here. The point is that that pastor had made an honest mistake, but it illustrates that leaders have to know where they're going. Because as go the leaders, so go the followers. The Apostle Paul left Titus, we just read about this, on the island of Crete to establish a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Titus was supposed to appoint leaders for the growing band of believers there. And except for preaching the gospel, nothing Titus did for the Christians on Crete was more important than finding the right leadership for them. And that's still true today. And that's why we're in the book of Titus. And that's why we're going to be seeing about 
leadership in preparing what God has for this church in future days and years until the Lord Jesus comes back again. The point here is the church leaders are to meet the standards that we just read about here in Titus chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. A very similar list occurs in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Followers, they're not out of it either. The uh, leaders of the church are supposed to lead properly, but the followers are to hold their spiritual leaders accountable for those goals, to pray for them, to obey them, to respect them, to esteem them, to love them. Some of the things we talked about last Sunday and to, to, to love them well as they imitate their faith. So whether you're leading or following, know where you're going, else you might end up in a closet, metaphorically, of course. The qualities here in Titus chapter 1, verses 6 to 9 are listed as qualifications for elders, overseers in the church, and that would include pastors. So Alden Union Church needs to hold its leaders to these standards. Don't settle for anything less. When you're looking for pastors, when you're looking for elders, when you're looking for trustees, hold them to the standards that are here. These also, as Dr. I said a little bit earlier, are qualities that every Christian should strive for, apart from those that we'll see here that are gender-specific. Speaking of that, let me mention this at the beginning. I'll get some of you angry at me at the beginning of the message instead of later on. Um, Every time I mention what I'm about to mention, it gets me in trouble. But it is the consistent teaching of God's Word. So let me get this out at the beginning. The elder or overseer or pastor must be a male, according to the Scriptures. I don't say that to support male chauvinism. I say that to support what the Scriptures teach. If you look carefully at the Scriptures, every pronoun used in this list, and also in 1 Timothy 3, is masculine. You'll also notice that the term elder or overseer is masculine. You'll see the expression husband of one wife. That leaves no room for any other interpretation. It's the husband of one wife. If it were meant to be different, there are a whole lot of ways that could have been said differently. You'll also find as we look at the Scriptures that the duty of oversight or superintending the church, and we see it in this Scripture and other Scriptures, which is the very nature of the office. An overseer does that superintending, does that overseeing. You'll find that that excludes women according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. And if you would turn there if you would like, or I'll put that on the screen if you'd like as well. Please understand that these verses in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 through 14 are verses that immediately precede the list of elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3. goes right into the next chapter. The context of 1 Timothy, according to chapter 3, verse 15, is so that people would know how to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church. It's the conduct that belongs to the church. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, the Apostle Paul says... I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So some would say, you know what, that's that's old-fashioned. You're being legalistic. You're going back to the law. You're going back to things that have nothing to do with today. And yet... Paul goes all the way back to creation. 
He goes all the way back to the fall. That's way before the law. This is what the Scriptures have taught from the very beginning. And so I have to mention that if I'm going to be true to the Word of God at the beginning as we're talking about the qualities of an elder, talking about the qualities of a trustee, talking about the qualities of a pastor, uh, group them together and call them overseers, if you will. One of those qualities is that it needs to be a man. We find no women elders or overseers in the New Testament. Leading a church was closely linked to leading a family. And according to the Scriptures, men are called to be the leaders in the home, also in the church. But please remember this, guys. We're called to be loving leaders, servant leaders, but leaders nonetheless. There are three qualities of an elder that we will look at this morning that are in the Scripture that we just read. The first one is an elder must be above reproach. An elder, pastor, overseer, the terms are synonymous, we saw last week, must be above reproach. The Greek word for above reproach that is used here in, in Titus, actually in two places, in verse 6 and in verse 7, it's anenkletos. It means unaccused. It means irreproachable. It means that which cannot be called into account. It implies not merely acquittal, but the absence even of a charge or accusation against a person. It means squeaky clean. And that is a tough act to do. But that's what's called for above reproach. That qualification is repeated, as I mentioned, in verse 7. It's also required of deacons, translated blameless in the ESV in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 2, the elder is also told that he should be above reproach. This time it's a different Greek word, but very, very similar. It's the word anapoleptos. It's translated blameless in other translations. So you keep getting this in the synonyms. You keep getting this with regard to what Paul writes to Timothy or to Titus. But it's the idea of above reproach or blameless. And this particular word now, anapoleptos, means not arrested. It's metaphorical, but not to be arrested, not to be guilty of a crime so that you're arrested for it, or inculpable. It doesn't mean not to be convicted. It means not even to be arrested once again. And again, that's in a metaphorical sense. It's not just for a legal offense, but for any moral or spiritual charge. These leaders have got to be clean. It's a term that is used in wrestling, that your enemy should not even be able to get a hold on you. Certainly, you don't want your opponent to pin you. You've lost but that's not what it's saying. Don't even let him get a hold on you. You can see these wrestlers are grappling together. And if you know anything about wrestling, you know that they're about to be grabbing each other's hands. They'll be doing something. They're going to try to take somebody down to the mat and pin somebody. But the picture here is don't even let the opponent get a hold on you. You are then if you are going to be or if you are now a church leader, you're going to be a man of integrity everywhere. You're going to be a man of integrity where you work. You don't cheat. You don't help yourself to company property. You don't steal time. 
You're a faithful and loving man at home. Your neighbors respect you. They shouldn't be able to see behavior that discredits the testimony you have for the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't involve yourself in road rage, pornography, alcohol abuse, inappropriate language, rudeness, immorality, gossip, greed, you name it. Why? Because you've got to be squeaky clean, above reproach, blameless. You are a marked man. You have something to live up to. You are an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. You represent him, not just here in the church, but absolutely everywhere. Please understand this. This is not calling for a man to be perfect, but to be conscious of keeping short accounts with sin, seeking forgiveness from God and the forgiveness of others when inappropriate behavior occurs. I'm going to tell you something about me right now that I'm ashamed of, actually. I'm not at all proud of this. I have a folder here. I don't know whether you can see this, but I mentioned this a couple of years ago on a Sunday night, and it's grown since then. But I don't know if you can see this, but there are a lot of papers in here. And what this is is correspondence between the IRS and myself over a two- to three-year period. And do you know why this is? And this is only a part of it. It's because for three years, they've been sending me $69.23, a check in the mail that's not mine. I have no idea how they came about. Has my social security number on all the correspondence. It has everything about me there, but they keep sending me $69.23. I've at first got the check and I refund from the government, it says, and I, great, so I cashed it. And then I got another one later on. And I thought, something's not right. $69.23. I don't get regular payments for anything like this. So I looked into it, and I found out that it was going to somebody else somewhere in this country whose name was maybe Paul Thompson. I don't know whether they just misfired on the Social Security number, one number, or whatever. We tried for months and months and months to track down the company. We we finally found out what company this person belonged to, but it's a large company with offices all over the the, the country, a security job. And uh, we called the the, uh, IRS repeatedly, made a couple of trips to the IRS office to try to straighten it out. I did everything they told me every step of the way. They'd say, here's where you mail the check back again. I'd mail the check back again. A little while later, I'd get a letter from the IRS. We just received a check for $69.23 from you. We have no idea what this is coming here for. Um, And it it just kept going and going. And then finally, I'm going to try to make this short. Finally, after about two years or so, got a letter. And the letter said, we have finally solved this problem for you. Everything is okay. Um, in checking through the accounts, we find that you owe $69.23 <laughs> from the years 2012 and 2013. And we'd been getting these checks in 14 and 15. So we made another trip to the IRS office. And I talked to the lady, you wait in line. And, and this is after years of this correspondence and years of listening to IRS music on the phone. <laughs> trying so hard 
to talk to a real human being and figure out the menus and everything. It was extremely frustrating over those years. Got the letter, and we went to the IRS to find out we can't possibly owe this money. And talked to the lady there after we waited in line for a long time again and talked to the lady. She was puzzled. She brought her supervisor, I guess it was, over, and the two of them were puzzled. And then she came out to us, and she said this. She said, we can't help you. We want you to, uh, here's a phone number. This is the Taxpayer Advocate Service. You need to talk to the Taxpayer Advocate Service, and they'll advocate for you and see what they can do. We don't know whether you owe this money or not. And I said, wait a minute. I said, you want me to go somewhere else? I said, you're the IRS. You're the one that I'm having the problem with, and you're the one who's charging me this money. What can I do? And I, and I I'd walked away, and I said, I don't believe this. And I'm not going to tell you who was with me, but there was somebody next to me. And, and as we walked out, she said, you know what? You aren't very nice to that lady. She said, um, in fact, you were rude. And, and I thought about it, and, and I said, but I, I didn't say anything about her. I did say something about the IRS. I said, is the IRS... Is the IRS going to refund me for my gas money for three trips out here now? Is the IRS going to refund me for all the postage, all the time and everything? And, um, yeah, I was whining. I know I was whining. But the person that was with me, whose name I'm not going to mention, who told me that I was rude, was right. And so I knew that if I was not going to have anybody have a hold on me, I needed to make it right with that lady. So I came back the next Friday didn't have to wait in a long line. I went up to the lady and I said, I was in here last Friday and uh, I want to tell you that I was rude to you. I didn't intentionally be rude to you. I was frustrated with the IRS, but I was rude to you and I want to apologize and ask for your forgiveness. And she looked at me and she said, I don't remember you <laughs> and I don't remember anything. <laughs> Point being, Above reproach, blameless, doesn't mean perfect. But it means when you mess up, you've got to make it right. It means that you've got to do the best you can to be the Lord's ambassador. Uh, and I mention that story to my shame, not to my credit. But that's what we need to be doing. So an elder must be above reproach. Above reproach or blameless is at the head of both lists in Titus and in 1 Timothy 3, and it's even twice in Titus. It's the umbrella under which all the other qualities we're going to look at, Lord willing, in these next several weeks, all of them will come under that same umbrella of above reproach. Just some of them will be itemized and, and made specific for us. If somebody's going to be weak in some of these other areas we're going to look at, that person is going to, not going to be above reproach. So one of the things also that I want to emphasize, it says the elder overseer, you see what's emphasized on the screen? Must be, Greek word dion, must be blameless. And that must be is a strong word. It's not to be watered down. It doesn't mean should be. doesn't mean we strongly recommend. It doesn't mean we would really like to see this. Must be blameless. Must be above reproach. And not only that, we saw this in our reading, must be the husband of one wife. What does that mean? Does that seem pretty clear? Must be the husband of one wife? I'm going to share with you 
six possible views on what that means. And I'm trying to do this briefly. Some think that this refers to the marriage to the church view. It's held by some Roman Catholics. It has to do with the celibacy of the Catholic clergy. They're married to the church. Therefore, they cannot marry anyone else. That's not what most Catholics hold to. Some do. The more usual explanation is that the priestly celibacy was an ecclesiastical law enacted simply as a means of discipline uh, to help to lead a disciplined life uh, to not be married. But there are some who say the marriage to the church view is what is meant here. The husband of one wife can only be married to the church. Therefore, um, a qualification of leadership is that that's the only marriage that I have. Another one is the prohibition of polygamy view. This view that understands the passage as prohibiting polygamy has a special appeal to people today. Since polygamy really doesn't exist in most Western countries, not legally, and since it is a non-issue, we don't have to worry about ruffling anybody's feathers or wrestling with difficult issues. So if polygamy is prohibited, and that's what this means, the husband of one wife, I can't be a polygamist, everybody says, oh, good. I don't have to worry about all the other ramifications of that. But no believers, not just leaders, were permitted to practice polygamy at that time. At that time, polygamy was forbidden in the empire. They had some ways of getting around it, but it was legally forbidden in the empire. There's no evidence that polygamy was ever a problem in the church. So if it wasn't in the church, it seems odd that a special prohibition was needed to exclude polygamists from being overseers or elders. If leaders were appointed from among the congregation and the problem didn't affect the congregation, then why single out this qualification for leadership? It's non-applicable. It's like saying that AUC, none of our leaders can be cannibals. Well, how does that apply? So I think we could rule out marriage to the church view, prohibition of polygamy view, a third view. Prohibition of remarried widows or widowers view. A prohibition of remarried widowers. Now, as we look at that, we look in the scriptures, we find that death frees people for remarriage. We see that of widows in 1 Timothy 5 14. Younger widows are actually encouraged to marry. We also see in Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, uh, if her husband, talking about not a widow here, but any woman, if her husband dies, now she's a widow, she's released from the law of marriage. Later on it says if her husband dies, she is free from that law. So the scriptures don't prohibit remarriage after the death of a spouse. So that view doesn't seem to hold any water either. There's a third one, exclusion of unmarried elders view. The exclusion of unmarried elders. This interpretation holds that only married men are eligible for the office. So if you're still single, you cannot serve according to this view. But it can't mean this. It simply assumes that most of the men under review are going to be married, and if they are married, then um, they should be, we'll see in just a moment, they should be faithful to their present wife. It doesn't exclude single men. Otherwise, the Apostle Paul wouldn't have been qualified because he wasn't married. Besides that, the word one, the word one when it talks about husband of one wife, 
that one technically is called a forceful adjective. It's placed first. Paul doesn't say that he must be the husband of a wife, husband of one wife, if he happens to be a husband. Now I think as we get into this next view, we're getting closer to what is intended. The faithfulness to your present wife view. Literal expression here is a one-woman man. The interpretation here is that you're faithful to the wife you were married to at the time. The past is not the determining factor. The present is what is important. You can't control the past. You can control the present and the future. I believe the passage means at least that, but I think we'll see a little bit more. And the last view is the prohibition of divorce view, that a church leader should not have been divorced or married to someone who's been divorced. This view points to the one-woman phrase, as the others do as well. It refers the phrase to a prohibition of divorce or any marital infidelity in persons chosen for being an elder. Divorce was a common occurrence among the Romans and the Jews at that time, but this view includes all other forms of infidelity to one's wife. Adultery, even apart from divorce. The, the whole idea of pornography, internet or otherwise. He must be a one-woman man, have nothing to do with another woman in a bad sense. All marital sins disqualify a man from eldership. Now here at Alden Union, we kind of combine five and six, or E and F if you're following the outline that way. And here's what our policy with regard to service in the church states. The church desires that the offices of pastor, pastoral assistants, elder, and trustee reflect the biblical ideal of marriage, which is one man, one woman, one lifetime. No person who is divorced and remarried or is married to a divorced person whose previous marriage was not, husband, excuse me, was not remarried or deceased at the time of the marriage, therefore, may hold any of these offices. The reason for the standard is the stricter interpretation of the requirements set for these positions of leadership, and 1 Timothy 3 is cited. However, exceptions to this policy may be granted when the Council of Elders recognizes significant extenuating circumstances and by a vote of three-quarters of the full board agrees that this restriction does not apply to a particular circumstance. And so a one-woman man, yes, can there be a divorce under rare occasions upon study of the elders and a vote of the elders? Uh, that could come about. But we prefer to take a stricter interpretation of that rule because we want the standards to be high. If we have a choice to be high, we want them to be high rather than low. Thirdly, qualification that we're looking at today, a man whose children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Most of the translations read that the children are believers or the children must believe. It's talking about children who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Those children of leaders must be Christians. Not only that, leaders should not have children who are open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. They may make a profession of faith, but if they live like a child of the devil out in the world, that's also a disqualification. Being wild or open to being charged with debauchery is variously defined as prodigality, 
that is the, the prodigal, the prodigal son we've, we hear about, or profligacy, or rioting. The word was used of drunken revelry at pagan festivals. The children of the leader should be under control. That's the point that's being made. They're not to be insubordinate. They're not to be disobedient. They're not to be in rebellion. 1 Timothy chapter 3 expands on this qualification in verses 4 and 5. It says, He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? An elder must, it says here, manage his family well. There are three ways that that word manage is defined when we look at that scripturally. We look at it scripturally in this regard. To stand before is one way. He's placed in front. The leader in his home is in front. He's got to take the lead. He doesn't remain in the background, in the shadows. He doesn't give his leadership in the home away. He doesn't abdicate that. When he stands before his family, the eyes are on him. It's like the manager of a baseball team or the CEO of a company cannot afford to run a democracy if that person is in fact supposed to be the leader. Manage, to stand before, manage also means to preside. Now this is an old trial, but it's recently been on TV once again, so some of you will understand this, most of you probably will. To preside. That's what a leader is supposed to be in his home. This is Johnny Cochran and Marsha Clark. One of those was the defense attorney. The other was the prosecuting attorney in the famous case involving O.J. Simpson, who's looking up at them from his seat over there. Johnny Cochran and Marsha Clark cannot run the courtroom. Judge Ito, if you remember, is the one who's supposed to be running the courtroom at that time. He presides He's the one who's to direct what goes on. He's the one who controls the others. The inmates don't run the prison. Manager, to stand before, to preside, to maintain is the third way that it's used. To maintain, to be over, to rule. He's got to manage his family and manage the family well. And his children need to obey him with proper respect. Greek word for obey is hupotage here, meaning to be under subordination or subjection. They're to respect him. Again, not perfection. We're not talking about a leader having perfect children. We're talking about a leader having normal children. Normal children, but not those who are in rebellion, who are riotous, those who are involved in good biblical word, debauchery. That's not the kind of child that indicates that there's been a good upraising. Children should be believers. Children should be on decent behavior. I'm going to close with this quote that will help us to understand because we grapple with all of these issues. How do we apply them exactly? When do we say that children are still governed by the parents at home. One writer says this, there is a question whether this requirement concerning faithful children applies only as long as children are under parental authority in the home or whether it includes those who are away from home. And he says, we favor the first view, remembering, however, that home training is one of the principal determinants of ultimate character. But what he allows for 
and I believe that there's, there, there's something that is very positive about this. A child is brought up in the home. He's under control. He's obedient. He's respectful. He makes a profession of faith. He's a baptized believer. He goes off to college, goes off into the world and changes. Is that a reflection on poor parenting or not? And I, I would like to conclude that it is not. I can understand that there are arguments on both sides, but there's no argument about this. There's no argument that a leader in the church, a pastor, an elder, a trustee must be above reproach. And that's what we at Alden Union Church have got to determine. We can't settle for anything less than that. Heavenly Father, thank you for your instruction. Thank you for Paul's instruction of Titus so that Titus could go out and do the things he needed to do in order to make sure that your church was being run the way you wanted it to be run. May Alden Union Church be the same, exactly the way you want us to be. May we not settle for anything less. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.